I mean, this is a relationship industry. It's not about, hey, give us some money. It's not going to the bank for a loan. These are people that you're going to be side by side with. You're going to be in touch with at least every month, if not every week or every few days over the next X number of years. Whether they come on your cap table or whether there's somebody that you want to go and talk to later or just be an ear to, to talk to if, if you need to or someone that you actually just like as a human being and want to be friends with. You've got to make sure that you maintain those relationships. This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm, Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, hello, founders and friends. Today, I'm chatting with Mel Fife. Mel is the co-founder of Blackthumb, a tech company that provides an intuitive end-to-end operating system for cultivators and producers of cannabis and food. Blackthumb wants to build resilient communities with better food security through the power of decentralized production. In this episode, you'll hear Mel share why decentralized food production, think growing crops in office buildings, is the way of the future. How she managed the awkward phase of financial insecurity right after leaving her career to build Black Thumb full-time. And how she nurtured relationships with prospective investors years before Black Thumb started raising capital. Let's dive in. Mel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Melinda. Lovely to be here. Mel, your company is Black Thumb. What's your elevator pitch? Black Thumb is an end-to-end operating system software for production teams in cannabis and food. And we are really driven by our mission to build resilient communities through the power of decentralised production. What's your big audacious dream for Black Thumb? In terms of the company itself, it really is to be the number one preferred and loved operating system for production teams. And although we're focusing on cannabis and food production right now, there is the opportunity to be used across almost any production environment, particularly one that deals with live products, such as plants in the case of cannabis and food. There's expansion opportunities into psilocybin, into lots of medicinal plants, but also craft brewers have approached us and hops growers, for example, so there's lots of opportunity for, for crossover. So, but Blackthumb for us is really about being that leading major product that is the, the foundation of so many production environments. By Blackthumb being in those industries and in those communities, we can really leverage some of those social impact goals that we're trying to achieve as well. As you mentioned before, your mission is to build resilient communities through the power of decentralised production. What do you mean by decentralised production? Sure. Great question. So a lot of, or most production that happens around the world, so post-industrial revolution, is has been largely centralised. Where we were primarily in the rural world before the industrial revolution, we became urbanised, especially since the 1950s, um, but it was gradually happening before then. So since the industrial revolution, that was when a lot of people who would normally work and live in rural areas, work on farms, 
moved into cities to really fuel that industrial drive. What we ended up with was a very centralised method of producing all of our food. So lots of big acreage production sites out in the country typically, and then bringing that food into cities to feed people. Now, that's a very efficient way of producing food, whether it's, it's animals or, or horticulture or other type of cropping. But the problem with it is, and especially we've seen it with climate impacts, with supply chain issues, with pandemics, all of these sorts of things that we've definitely been facing in our very recent history is that they're not very resilient. And what it also means is that we have a lot of structural consistency around those methods where you've got a lot of generational wealth, typically white families or white people running these type of environments and, and really sort of being at the top of the food chain. And a lot of people of colour, Indigenous people, people from disadvantaged backgrounds often doing the grunt work. And, and there, there's that real inequity in terms of that social gap. And so given that we're very urbanised communities these days, decentralised production is a way to essentially localise production and you can network those opportunities using technology. And so what that means is that by having smaller production sites, and by small I mean they're still high yielding, they still produce a lot of food, but you can, because of vertical structures or the different methodology, methods of growing, you can actually grow a lot in a small space. So decentralised production is really about having lots of more localised sites that work together and serve a more localised community and catchment as opposed to what we've been having over the last few hundred years where it's out in the country and then it's all brought into the city to feed people in the city primarily. So it's really making that change so that we can have more localised, diverse production in urban areas as well as regional and remote areas, but being able to really diversify the load. And why did you choose food and cannabis to start off with? So food for us was really about trying to make an impact in food insecurity. So even in Australia, a very wealthy country, we still have a serious amount of food insecurity here. And it's a problem that's all around the world. And any fractures to that food supply chain, such as pandemics, will exacerbate that issue. So for us, it really started with trying to do something about that, that problem, seeing it all around us, even in a wealthy place like Australia, living in the, the inner part of Sydney, and the access to the ability to produce those foods and really have a say in those production methods for a broader range of the community. So that was a big part of it for us and how we started. And so my co-founder, Carrie, and I, we've been doing Black Thing Thumb since 2016. And part of our journey was, you know, taking what we already knew, going and getting trained in these production methods and then building and operating farms ourselves. And so for us, it started out with us being producers to grow food and, you know, sharing that with the community and the businesses. Through that journey and through our professional backgrounds in the built environment, we also were consulting. So we're working with a lot of both food and cannabis producers who are trying to get sites up and running, who are trying to understand operations, and we were able to help them with that. And so through that process and Blackthumb always being an impact business, so initially focused on food insecurity, but there was this huge market and this huge opportunity in cannabis where the medicinal benefits of the plants are incredible, you know, the social benefits of the plants are incredible. And a lot of the problems that exist in those industries in terms of production are essentially the same. And so we saw this opportunity to combine what we were doing with cannabis. And actually, that's where a huge amount of our focus is at the moment. And the same sort of social issues there. So it's not food insecurity, but it's very much about the war on drugs and the stigma associated with cannabis as a plant 
and really trying to re-educate people and the medical professionals on it's not this evil drug, it's actually this hugely beneficial plant that can have a lot of benefits for people with chronic pain, serious illness, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we're really trying to achieve. And then, of course, the decentralised production by changing the structures of who's growing, who's owning, where food's produced, where cannabis is produced, and really having an industry that's more reflective of society as a whole. Mel, you've touched a couple of times on food insecurity in a country like Australia or or in New Zealand, where your co-founder is from, both countries which would by any measure be considered to be extremely abundant countries. And I know you and Kerry both come from working class backgrounds and where you were both personally experienced food insecurity. Are you able to share what food insecurity looks like for you in Australia? I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I'll speak for myself rather than Kerry. So for me, so food insecurity is a spectrum. So it's everything from I'm not sure where I'm going to get my next meal from, all the way through to I'm I'm skipping meals because I can't afford it, I don't have access, I don't have the skills, whatever it might be. Food insecurity for me personally was there were many times we were on incredibly low incomes and my mum did the absolute best she could and, you know, we, we were most of the time always fed. She always did a great job for us. But there were times where it was just it was really tough and we weren't quite sure if we'd make it through the week or if we'd make it through the fortnight and... And that places a lot of stress on the family. So even as a kid, you start to get a real understanding about money's tight. Although I wouldn't say that we skipped meals. So we weren't at that extreme end. There were a lot of people who are at that extreme end. But there was definitely a lot of stress around, can we get through for us? So definitely that was my experience. My mum did everything she absolutely could for us and did an absolutely stellar job, I've got to say. And how do you see something like Black Thumb, empowering people who grew up in a situation similar to yours or or less fortunate than you in terms of day-to-day living? How does it improve food security for everyday people? It provides access to skills and jobs in local communities, so that's one. It provides part of what we're trying to do is really starting these types of operations, starting these types of businesses, and more on the cannabis side than the food side. It's still the food side. You know, it's the capital costs and the operating costs you know, having that knowledge and experience around finances, being able to put a feasibility study together, all of those sorts of things. So there's a lot of barriers to access if you don't necessarily have that those skills and experience, and that can take a very long time to learn. And then what we also find in food and cannabis is that because they're nascent emerging industries, you've got a real, you've got a lot of growth happening in the industry but there's not a lot of people who have experience. And so there's this, there's this capacity gap, there's this skills gap. And so part of what we're also trying to do is really bring in best practice, standardised procedures, so that no matter where you are in the world and no matter what you're growing, you essentially get black thumb and you get a ready-made guide on how to do these things so that you know you're following the correct procedures, you know what type of jobs you need to do, you can set everything up without having to go through the pain of having to learn it and figure it out yourself, which literally takes years. And then, of course, the cost of having to do that. So you can set up a home grow, especially for food. You can do that You can do that pretty cheaply, but you still have to buy racks. You've got to buy aerators. If you're doing hydroponics or aquaponics or aeroponics, you know, you've got to buy all that kit. You've got to have the know-how and how to put it together. So there's all these barriers that are in place depending on your skill set, your financial background. And what we're trying to do is really diminish those as much as possible to really increase that access. Now, how does your personal experience that you spoke of, how does that influence your day-to-day work with Black Thumb? 
Both Carrie and I came into this because we want to actually give back. We want to see change in the systems of our society. And so that's what really drives us. And this is a way that we can at least make a little bit of a dent in that. And doing that in a really meaningful way around people's health, around their food security and around wellbeing. From day one, Black Thumb, we always wanted to create a company that was about impact. So on a day-to-day level, it's about with what we're building, with how we're designing, with the people that we bring on, with the voices that we amplify. How do we do that in a way that's aligned with our values and our, our intention as possible? So that's always brought into the job with Carrie and I and making sure that, you know, we've we're hiring amazing people. We're making sure that everything that we do is as on track with that as possible. And where does the name Black Thumb come from? Everyone's heard of the term a green thumb, someone who's great at growing plants. Not everyone knows the term Black Thumb, which is basically, you know, that person who can't garden and they would just kill everything that they try and touch. Right. <laughs> so Black Thumb, and particularly because when we started out, it was very much about growing in unusual places, in office buildings, integrating these production spaces into crazy places and so it's like hmm you shouldn't be able to do that but you can and so for us it was about playing on those words you don't have to have a green thumb to be a black thumb and so really sort of flipping and reowning that word as a positive as opposed to a negative great love it how did you meet your co-founder carrie well we've known each other for a long time and we're actually partners life partners as well as business partners so we were, we were already together before Black Thumb, but it's been a big part of our life together and what we're both mutually committed to trying to achieve in this world. And so that's a pretty exciting thing to do with your partner, to, to create something from scratch. It's hard, but we love doing it together and really seeing that change. It's that, it's that thing about bigger the change that you want to see in the world. And so for us, it's about this. Again, this is a way that we can really do that. That's how we met many years ago now. And been doing black together for about six. I normally say to people, going into business with someone is like marrying them. But when you go into business with someone who's actually your partner, how do you make that decision and get to that point of going to business with someone who you already see twenty four seven? Otherwise, I think it was it was a natural progression for us. As with anything, it starts out as, a, as an idea and it's something you talk about and you're really passionate about. We start exploring more avenues and it's like we can actually do something with this and we're so energised by what we could potentially do with it that we just kept on exploring it. Talked about training and building and operating farms. We did all of that together. We brought our skills together. I loved it and it is hard. You, you are together 24-7. Building a startup is a really intense exercise. So, of course, there are times where you disagree on things and you need to sort that out and resolve that but what it also does is allows you to to know that that other person is really committed with you and to know that that you're absolutely intentional in what you're trying to achieve and the other great thing is that before you'd see your partner go off to work and you'd know that they were really good at what they did or you'd see them thrive in a particular environment but you get to see the best of them on a day-to-day basis and that's pretty wonderful and also seeing each other grow and develop and achieve, acquire new skills and meet new people and just do better is such a wonderful thing to experience with your partner as well as your business partner. Normally when you're about to go into business with someone, you'll seek some advice about whether or not to go into business. You might speak to your partner, for example. So in the case of going into business with your own partner, was anyone else aside from Carrie obviously involved in the decision? for you to go into business with your partner? No, it's really just us. 
And it was us that mutually made the decision, you know, to go all in. We, we'd been doing it and it had been intensifying over the years. And then a few years ago, it was like, okay, well, and, you know, we'd been bootstrapping up until our recent raise, but it's like, okay, well, let's, let's just go all in on this. You know, Carrie's been working on it full time. I was working on it mostly full time, but also had a day job. I don't think we ever talked to our friends or family about making that decision to go and do it together. It was just something that we wanted to do so much that it almost wasn't a decision at all. It just made it for itself. You mentioned that um, it was a bit of a side hustle for you and Kerry was working on it sort of full-time before you joined full-time. What was the inflection point in Black Thumb that made you decide to jump in and for both of you to work on it full-time? So it was a couple of things. So one for me was over COVID, I was working for a transport consultancy. They decided to close their Sydney office and so I was actually made redundant. That was almost a forcing point for the decision. So we'd already been wanting to do it for quite a long time, but that that really made the decision for us. So it's like, well, never get a better opportunity than now, so let's, let's do it. That was a huge part of it. It was also really this turning point that we had around focusing on the software, something that we needed to put a lot of time and energy into. Although it was very serious before that, it was just getting to the point where it's like, okay, this is this is really the big game now. Like let's we've got to be all in in order to do this. And so we just decided to throw in the chips. Obviously worked out to make sure that we weren't going to end up in a place of homelessness or poverty or anything like that. But one of the things that we're both good at is taking these informed risks. So we're both risk takers in that kind of a way. So we just talked about the decision, then we're all systems go. Were, were there any metrics that you looked at or have you set up certain metrics to say, look, if we get to a point where we're, we're not able to make rent anymore, then it's game over? Or how did you decide what those boundaries would be when neither of you were, were getting an income elsewhere? One of the big decision makers was whether or not we could raise the money to, to be able to support us both doing it full time. So we did have those fallback positions where it's like, okay, if this doesn't happen by this time, then either we'll both go and get part-time jobs, one of us will go and get a full-time job just so that we can balance that out. And then when we get into the right position again, we can go all in again. But it was always about what do we need to do in order to get there back to all in as opposed to, okay, it's, it's, it's all over then. So you're the CEO and Kerry is the COO. How did you decide on that separation of roles? Who would take which role? It was, a, it was a fit for our personalities and also it was just about playing to our strengths, really. Carrie's an incredible planner. She's an incredible organiser. She's an incredible strategist and she's also very creative. Part of what she does is she's essentially a mix between the Chief Innovation Officer and a COO at the moment. So she straddles both of those roles and is very good at them. And for me, I'm much more of the kind of outward face and so I enjoy things like public speaking I enjoy going to meet people I enjoy all of that all of that outside stuff and I'm also a decent administrator so it was kind of this mix of our personalities our preferences and it was just a really nice natural fit in the end I'd like to talk to you about your capital raising journey Black Thumb has completed two pre-seed raises your most recent raise was February of this year 2022 where you raised $825,000 you had built Black Thumb over a number of years without raising capital so bootstrapping it what made you decide it was time to get external funding in neither Carrie or I have software or technical backgrounds and we knew that we needed to build a team around us in particular Carrie had built prototype had done a lot of the design thinking had really built that out. We've done a lot of validation work with customers, but it came to the point where 
to get where we needed to go. We just couldn't fund that ourselves anymore. Like even if both of us were working full time, we still wouldn't be able to hire the people that we needed to hire. So it just came to the point where it's like, okay, in order to make this business the fuel that it needs to to get where where we want to see it go, we need to get some outside capital and bring it in. So that was a big impetus for for us raising it. And also we knew by that stage that we'd built enough of something and had validated it and knew that we had something special. We knew that we we had to do it. And so let's go out there, raise some money and make it happen. For many founders, one of the challenges of capital raising is that they leave it too late to build a network of prospective investors. How did you go about building your network? We'd actually been building it for a good couple of years. So our lead investor title, we'd actually met Georgie, who was lead on our deal a good couple of years before. And they'd been really tracking our progress over the years. We'd made sure that we maintained that relationship, kept in touch. Where did you meet them? Any one context? A warm introduction. A couple of years ago, we did an accelerator at Cicada Innovations. And there were some other founders there. And and this was a founder at Lit Plus, and she introduced me to Georgie. And at that stage, we just weren't ready for investment, but went and made the introduction. It's, and it's that classic thing of you should always, you know, just as you said, you should always build those relationships early because you might be dating for 18 months before you get work married. We went out there and, and, and built those relationships. I say this to Georgie, like even from the first moment I talked about Black Thumb with her, even though it was a very different business to what it is today, I felt like she got it and she knew what our intention was and she she supported that and and felt like her whole energy was behind us. And that's a really inspiring thing, especially as an early stage founder, to, to meet someone who you, you kind of feel really gets it and then supports you for a long period of time after that to make sure that you've got what you need and then is like, we want to raise some money. And it's like, okay, let's make something happen. So Tidal in particular were amazing. They do what they say on the box. They do value add and support founders and, you know, help you on your journey. And that was even before they came in as, as an investor. That, they've been pretty amazing. So really building those relationships and also with other other VCs and family offices and angels and syndicates as well. We've been we've been hard at that for a good a good couple of years and have built some really solid relationships. So when we eventually went out, we had a really strong network to be able to go out to, which was great. Was the raise structured in the sense that you had a strict timetable and program, or was the process led by the investor meetings and the people who you spoke to? It was led by us, but it was it was quite collaborative. So we knew that we wanted title to be our lead. And so we really went after them. Once they had come on board, and this was this was actually towards the end of the year. And so we set ourselves a crazy audacious goal that we wanted to close around before Christmas. And everyone's like, you're dreaming, and this is never gonna happen. No way. But actually what happened is we ended up getting the final yes on the 23rd of December. I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> It was a nice little Christmas present and quite a relief because going to your earlier question, it was about, you know, can we raise this money? And if not, what do we do? And so we were kind of getting to that point and say, we're pretty close. And then, you know, our final investor came in and wanted to take the rest of the round and we're an incredible investor to have on the team because of the value that they could add. So it was a, it was a very firm yes and it was a very exciting time. We actually closed it within three weeks. So it was actually a pretty quick close. Very quick. How did you convince Tidal to come on board as lead? I think because we've been working with them so long, they they wanted to come on as the lead. So this was, was very much something that we each wanted. 
And so in that sort of way, it was, it was very nice and natural and mutual. And so, of course, we had to, we had to go through all the processes we had to put together, we had to pitch the IC, had to do all of those sorts of things. But they wanted to be in our camp and we wanted to be in theirs. And so once we'd gotten to the point where that was possible, we were able to come together and move forward. Were there any cold lead investors that you approached or were all the ones you approached for this round warm leads? They were all warm. So if we didn't know them before, they were introduced by either investors who committed or others who might have said no and then and then passed us, made the introduction. Because we'd built relationships with a lot of investors over the last couple of years, we had a good amount of people that we could go speak to, which was great. But we were also quite specific about the types of investors that we wanted to bring on to this round because we knew where our gaps were. We knew the goals that we wanted to achieve. And so it was making sure that we essentially built, you know, just like you'd hire your staff, it's, it's making sure that you build the team around you who can help you achieve those goals and, and who will get value and enjoy that process along the way as well. How did you vet investors to ensure that they were plugging the holes that they say they would plug? I mean, like any founder, you should do your research, check out their website, check out reviews, you know, talk to other people if you know people in their portfolio. And then when you actually have the meeting with them, ask questions. Ask every single investor. It's like, these are the sort of goals we, we want to achieve. How can you help us get there? And just being really direct like that. And then you can have that conversation about the type of, of value that they can add. So we had investors that were really strong going to help us with fundraising in terms of where we want to go next, those who are really great on products, those who are great on marketing and community. So really kind of identifying those areas that we wanted to make sure we're really strong in and then bringing them on the table and making sure through our conversations with them that they were the right people. And and we had the right vibe from this, from them as well. So this wasn't just about the check and the money and, you know, a name. It was about are these people that we actually want to hang out with, that we want to be vulnerable with that we want to ask questions of and who are willing to help and so making sure we did that vetting process as well so it was very much a two-way street. What was the most difficult question that an investor asked you? Probably the most difficult question was when we got asked about community so we we engage especially the cannabis industry and community quite a lot and and we, we're really building that community with us but then there was this whole other part of community building that we needed to kind of gain some more understanding of. But that was also really beneficial because it's like, okay, this is an area that we can strengthen and that's really powerful for the business. Your investors that can really help us achieve that outcome. And so although it was a challenge at the time, it was actually a really wonderful question to ask because then we were able to on the spot go, okay, we'd like to work with you on these types of things. And we were able to to mutually agree that that's something we both love to work on. So that was that was a you know a win-win on both sides. What surprised you, Mel, about the capital raising process? When you've got a number of investors who you spoke to who are interested that have to come back to you and haven't come back to you yet, and then you actually close the round and then having to manage those relationships, that can be something that is a bit difficult to manage. You know, you need to be mindful of of those people as human beings and as people who want to invest in your company. And, and also what you need to do as a founder is to make sure that I do want to say yes to that investor because that other investor who might you know, have strategic benefit, who might have value in other ways, you need to weigh that up. Yeah, that was probably the area that was kind of trickiest and just making sure because we were at, at that end of year period to make sure that we got all of that done as quickly as possible 
while being mindful that people were going away, were trying to wrap up at the end of the year, and that's an incredibly busy, difficult time. It's a good problem to have, but um, it's good not to burn your bridges because you never know, do you? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's something that, I mean, this is a relationship industry. It's not about, hey, give us some money. It's not going to the bank for a loan. These are people that you're going to be side by side with, you're going to be in touch with at least every month, if not every week or every few days over the next X number of years. Whether they come on your cap table or whether there's somebody that you want to go and talk to later or just be an ear to, to talk to if, if you need to or someone that you actually just like as a human being and want to be friends with, you've got to make sure that you maintain those relationships because it goes for anywhere. But in Australia, it's a very small industry. Everyone knows each other. So if you act like a jerk, that is going to get around and people are going to be less willing to deal with you in the future. Very true. Mel, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or who are embarking on the capital raising journey? Do your research on the type of investor that you want to bring on and why you want that investor on because not only does that help you drill down the pool, if, if you're a fintech, you're not going to go to an ag tech investor, for example. And so you need to be careful about, you know, picking the investor that invests in your vertical at your stage and then doing that additional thing of are they the people I want to spend time with? Are they going to potentially add value? And then identifying the type of people. If you can, I mean, it's that warm intro thing. If you can get a warm intro, that's great. But most species are more than happy for you to reach out. Because we are quite early stage as well, making sure that not only about doing that due diligence on your investors that you want to reach out to, but making sure that you've done your work around the value of that product and making sure that it's a good fit for that organization as well. So one of the things we did was a lot of workshopping around. We really were articulating very well the value of the product, being able to articulate that stuff around product work fit and doing some extra work. So making sure you've got those sort of ducks in a row, especially if you're at a pre-seed stage. And one of the things you've got to be mindful of at this sort of stage is there's not a lot of VCs in particular that do invest at this round. So you've got to make sure that you've built those relationships. They know exactly what you're trying to achieve and you pick up those signals early before you even try and go for money. When you did your due diligence on prospective investors, what was the best source of information for you to really find out what a particular investor was about? And this is more for about funneling through about stage and vertical is Airtree's got an open source fundraising um, spreadsheet that they use, which is pretty fabulous. And I've relied on that a lot. Some of, the, some of them aren't necessarily all up to date, but it's a really helpful uh, starting point or secondary point for you. If you know someone who knows someone, then obviously reach out to that person, have a call, send them a text, send them an email and just ask. People are really quite open to sharing their views and again, that relationship thing, then they're not going to send you down the wrong track. They'll give you a quite an honest opinion, especially if you have a relationship with that person already. So definitely lean on that if you can, but also understanding that unless you've been doing that for a while or you've been in, in those circles for, for a little bit, that can be quite difficult to do. But so if you're just starting from scratch, just jump on the website, jump on that entry um, document and just learn as much as you can read medium articles, read blog posts, just try and get a sense of who people are and then reach out to them. There's something that will try and hook their attention. Great advice. Mel, I'd like to finish off with what I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. All righty. What's your favourite work from home, lunch or snack? It's got to be coffee. 
I'm, I'm a big coffee fiend. I'm a wake up in the morning. I need to have a coffee type of person. So give me a flight ride. I'm happy. I'm a happy woman. <laughs> great. <laughs> What's a great book that you have read recently? There was a book I got recently called Playing to Win, really around strategy and you know, I'm a strategic planner by trade. And so I'm really interested in the application of strategy in startup environments and these sort of business environments. I've always, always wanted to learn more. So that's a book that I've got waiting to read that I'm really excited to read. What's a documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend? I've seen a lot of musician documentaries lately. The Amy Whitehouse one is really interesting. And Whitney Houston, that's right. I'm like, I could see her name. I know she's a legend. Whitney Houston, Amy Whitehouse. I, it was, it's one of those things I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that Whitney Houston had passed away. Back of a cab, very early morning in London at the time. It, it just seemed really surreal. Funnily enough, I was in London when I heard, I was living in London when Amy Winehouse died. And so I was in London for that announcement. And I was like, and I, lived, I was working in Camden at the time where she lived. And I thought this is just felt very close to home, even though we were no way connected at all. What's the most useful good or service that you've purchased in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less? I got a water bottle for about $10 from Decathlon and it's 1.2 litres and it fits in a car holder and fits in my bag and I absolutely love it. Excellent. Good one. What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now? I am a complete um, electronica fiend and electronica and strings I absolutely love, but what's on what's on rotation really is, is progressive techno playlist on Spotify, so... That's a big insight into my personality right there. I feel you. I grew up with techno too. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Mel, if you could invite any person to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be and why? The two people that spring to mind are two of my favourite politicians. There's three actually. So Jacinda Ardern, Helen Clark or Julie Gillard. I would love to invite either of these, those three women to dinner because I think that they would be absolutely fascinating. Helen Clark in particular has been a, a hero of mine for a long time, um, absolutely brilliant woman, and in her own words, speaks truth to power, which I think is, is something incredible. And really that no-nonsense approach of hers and the way that she speaks to people I think is just brilliant in a politician. And I know that as all politicians don't necessarily get everything right, I think there was a lot that she got right in her long period of time as New Zealand's Prime Minister. Great choice. I would put my hand up for that dinner as well, I think. <laughs> this has been lots of fun. Um, how do people reach you? Feel free to reach out to my email, melablackthumb.com, black without the C. Um, you can contact us via the website on Twitter or LinkedIn. So my Twitter handles at Mel underscore Fife, or you can catch us at blackthumb underscore AU as well. Thank you very much for sharing your story with me today, Mel. I'm very grateful for you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And this has been a lot of fun. I've got a big smile on my face as well. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Mel and Black Thumb in our show notes. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. If you'd like to learn how to raise capital like a guru, like Mel, join our Termsheet Negotiation Masterclass. To register, head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. If you enjoyed this episode of The Raise, please rate, review and subscribe. It really helps spread these amazing founder stories far and wide. 
I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising journey.